All right. Well, I invite you to take out your Bibles this morning and turn to the book of Zechariah, the second to last book in the Old Testament, one that we don't frequent very often. I think Zechariah 3 is now my favorite chapter in Zechariah, but that's not saying a whole lot because there's so much left to study in Zechariah. And once you find it, I'll invite you to please stand for the reading of God's word. Zechariah chapter 3. This is God's word. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, if you walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are assigned. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch before you. Sorry, behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. This ends the reading of God's word. Would you please pray with me? Father, this morning as we come before your word, we are so grateful for what you have to show us. We pray that we pray that by your spirit, Lord, you would work in our hearts. You would show us wonderful things in your word. Father, we pray that in all of this, Christ would be glorified and we would be made more like our Savior. And we ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. I'm excited to get into this uh, amazing chapter in Zechariah, chapter 3. The sermon this morning is called From Rags to Riches. No, I'm sorry, that's wrong. From rags to righteousness. From rags to righteousness. I think we're all a big fan of rags to riches stories, aren't we? It just kind of came out because that's what we're so familiar with. That's the story we're used to seeing and hearing. I'm thinking of, of a movie, uh, I can't remember what year it came out, but The Pursuit of Happiness with a Y, right? With Will Smith and his son Jaden. That was a great rags to riches story. Or what about uh, Andrew Carnegie? He's probably the quintessential rags-to-riches story in American history. He was born in a one-room weaver's cottage in Scotland, and he immigrated to the United States in 1848, took a job at a textiles factory, made less than $2 a week. That's a little more in our dollars today, but that's not much. But what happens? By the end of the century, uh, Carnegie is a steel magnate, right? He has an empire, and he sells his steel company for $480 million, the richest man in the world at the time. And of course, he's the best kind of rags to riches story, right? Because then he turns around and uses that wealth to serve so many others. 
But there's something about this rags to riches theme, I think, that really resonates with us. It captivates us. It's this sought after ideal of upward mobility. And, and we love it. It finds its way into the classics and literature. We go and watch movies about it. And I think we love it because it holds out something attractive to us, doesn't it? It, it tells us that some problem that we have can be overcome if we work hard enough. Now, of course, some of these rags to riches stories is just a sudden windfall, right? Maybe an inheritance, somebody gets rich and famous. Those stories sometimes annoy us because we think, oh, there's no way. But we really like the stories that show good, hard work paying off, right? We think that's the ticket. There's no problem that can't be solved with just a little bit more elbow grease, with just a little more grit and determination. It is possible for that story to be ours, But in scripture, there's an even greater theme, an even greater story than the rags to riches story. It's greater because it shows the solution to a far greater problem than needing more money. It shows us a far greater problem than poverty, than humble beginnings, a problem that we could never overcome, even if we had 10 lifetimes to work hard and to determine to overcome. The problem is sin, right? The problem that scripture says needs dealt with in our lives is sin. And scripture tells us that what sinners need is a rags to righteousness story. It's not a pull yourself up by your own bootstraps kind of story. It's, it's not a climb the ladder of success story. None of that will work. And it's far more amazing than that. There's no rags to righteousness story. No overcoming that problem of sin without divine intervention without the divine solution of mercy and grace and Jesus. And that is exactly what we see in this Old Testament prophetic book that may be a little hard to understand, but it's so beautiful how it points to the rags to righteousness story of Scripture. And what we see here is that this rags to righteousness story is all about Jesus silencing the case that stands against us. It's about Jesus pleading our cause in the presence of the Father and putting his righteous robes on us, sacrificing himself as our redeemer. And that's an incredible story, right? That's one we could hear every single day. We're going to see that in Zechariah 3, and we're going to trace this rags to righteousness story by looking at three things. We're going to look at, first, the case against Joshua, the high priest. And really, it's the case that's against you and me as well. And we're going to see that Joshua isn't alone. There's an advocate beside Joshua. We're not alone. We have an advocate beside us. And finally, we'll see the substitute for Joshua. And that's where we really get into the heart of the gospel in Zechariah 3. So the case, the advocate, and the substitute. Let's look first at the case. When we come to Joshua and to Zechariah chapter 3, we find ourselves in a court. It's a court setting. But what kind of court? Well, imagine... Uh, It's legal and it's royal. Imagine a kingly court, a royal court, and the supreme court all wrapped into one. This is the heavenly court where the king is the judge of all the earth. And that's the court where we're at in this vision. But we find Joshua, and we think, who's Joshua? Uh, It's not Joshua, the son of Nun. It's not Moses' number two. This is Joshua, the high priest. He shows up in Haggai chapter one, uh, and he's receiving with Haggai the word to rebuild the temple. It's a little bit earlier than Zechariah, but Haggai and Zechariah are both contemporaries. So here in chapter 3 of Zechariah, we have kind of a biblical crossover episode. I don't know if you've seen series where one you know, set of actors go over to the other series. It's kind of like a crossover. Here you have Zechariah 
popping up now in, or sorry, Joshua popping up in Zechariah chapter 3. But he's popping up in this vision. So it's not Joshua the high priest as a real literal person. I mean, it is a, he is a real person. But here he's, a, he's in this vision as a symbol. He's standing there symbolically to represent something. So what is he a symbol of, we have to ask. We have to kind of get our minds around this as we get into Zechariah 3 for it to make sense. We see Zechariah is seeing a vision of Joshua the high priest and this story that unfolds, but it's all representative of something. So what is it a symbol of? Well, Joshua the high priest really does double duty in this vision. He stands for more than one thing. He stands for Jesus in the end. He points to Jesus. But before we get there, before, before he begins to point to Jesus, he's actually pointing to the sins of the people. And we can see ourselves in Joshua and in what happens with Joshua. So we'll explore that a little bit more. But he's representing, first of all, the people of Israel. He's representing them. And if you remember, the reason he's representing them in their sin is that Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel, has been in captivity in Babylon for 70 years. And now, 20 years after they've returned, they're all pretty sad. The spirits are down in Judah. The, temples, the, the temple that they thought they would have rebuilt by now isn't finished. It's not even close. And they're discouraged. They have these big ideas about what the return to their homeland would be like. They thought the restoration would be much better than it's turned out to be at this point. And it seems like even though they've been set free, maybe everything is lost. Maybe their hopes are going to be crushed. And they think their problem is a torn down temple. But really, it's something deeper, something more personal than that. And that's what we see as Joshua represents the people. He represents this deeper, more personal problem that they have. He's, he's a symbol of the people. And he reveals that there are serious issues that have to be taken care of. And remember, he is the high priest. And he's standing there, as we'll see, in filthy rags. There are serious issues that have to be taken care of until this worship that they want to continue in the temple can even happen. There's something far greater at stake. The people have rebelled against God, right? They've turned their hearts from him. Because of that, they were exiled. Deuteronomy 30 makes it clear. The terms of the covenant, turn away from me and perish. Choose life by obeying me and live. Those are the terms of the covenant made with the nation. So they were saved out of Egypt by the powerful, gracious hand of the Lord. Once and for all, they were justified by faith in the Redeemer, in the Lamb, in the final sacrifice that they saw in the types and shadows of the Old Testament. But as far as their earthly life and blessing and protection and safety in the promised land, it, it depended on their obedience. So it would seem like an obvious choice, right? We like the land of milk and honey. We like serving the Lord. Let's obey him. Let's continue to serve him. But they didn't. The people didn't choose life. They chose to love and to serve other gods. And this exile then served as a deadly reminder of the wages of sin. It served as a, a reminder of the deadly cost of breaking covenant with God as a picture for us. But what was a picture for us is not the final point in their story. We know it's not, right? Because here we see them back in the promised land. After the appointed 70 years, here they are back in Jerusalem. But all is not well yet. The temple has not been rebuilt. They have not been cleansed. And we see that in this story about Joshua. And we see the wonderful divine solution for this problem. We see Joshua the high priest and in him the whole nation standing in God's heavenly court. And there's a lock 
tight case to be made against them. It's airtight. There's no getting around it. There's a strong case to be made against them. So first, let's look at who's making the case in court against Joshua, against the people, against us. And let's see whether or not there is a case to be made. First, we see Satan's accusations. If you look at verse 1, we read that Satan is standing at his right hand to accuse him. And really, in Hebrew, the word Satan doesn't show up. It's just the accuser, which highlights even more what Satan is all about in this story. He is there for one reason and one reason alone, to accuse the people in Joshua before the Lord. And we'll see that this accusation is something that we deal with as well. This chapter is really a picture of justification, a picture of being set free from the bondage of sin and death and being robed in the righteousness of Christ. But it's also important for us, as we've already been justified, to see this story and remember it. It has huge implications for believers because Satan continues to accuse us, doesn't he? We have to think carefully about the accusations of Satan because we also have a conscience. We have a conscience that tells us when we've done something wrong. We have a conscience that if it's trained by the word of God, it, it pricks us. It's pricked and it tells us, hey, you're straying from the path. You know, Now in my third decade of life, I'm becoming more and more conscious of my food conscience, right? And I know why it is that some desserts are called things like decadent chocolate cake or tempting truffles, right? I know that this thing that seems like eternal bliss when I eat it is not going to go well with me, right? It's not going to sit well. It's not going to ride well in a few weeks. And so, you know, I don't always listen to my food conscience, but I have a conscience that's reminding me this probably isn't a good idea. Well, in the same way, we've been given a conscience that when it's well-trained by the word of God, it reminds us and it brings to our attention, hey, this is not a good idea. And to our shame, we don't always listen. But we have to distinguish between what our conscience reminds us of and the attacks of the accuser, Satan. He especially likes to seize on us and, and tempt us and accuse us when our conscience is out of tune with the gospel. When our conscience doesn't remember the story that we're seeing here, that we've been cleansed, that we've been robed in righteousness. So when you sin, your conscience should tell you. But when you sin and that, you, you're filled with that sense of unworthiness, that crushing weight of condemnation. You believe in Jesus. You love Jesus. But you're, you're tempted to crumple into this big ball of despair. Because you have sinned and you think, I'm no longer accepted. I'm no longer invited before the presence of the Lord. Jesus no longer loves me. See, that's where you've moved from the conscience and you've moved to the accusations of the accuser, of the devil. And I think we're all really familiar with those accusations, right? And what's so poignant about Satan's accusations in Zechariah 3, and we'll see this as we go through, he's never refuted. He's never contradicted. He's rebuked, but he's not refuted. Joshua stands for the people, right? And these are accusations against all of Judah, against all of God's people. And what we find is that the Lord doesn't say that Satan is wrong about any of it. And Joshua is silent. His silence speaks a thousand words because there's nothing to contradict what Satan claims about him, about the people, about us. I think we can say the same even after we've been cleansed by the blood of Christ. When the devil accuses us about breaking God's law, is he wrong? Is he ever completely wrong? 
You know, this, this passage, like I said, it, it's first and foremost a picture of justification, but it's vital, it's crucial to understand even as we undergo the process of sanctification, as we're being made more and more by God's grace into the likeness of Jesus Christ, as we're being conformed into the image of our Savior, this is crucial to remember because when these accusations come up, none of us are Teflon pants in the kingdom of God. There's always something that can stick. Something can always stick when Satan accuses us. And maybe some of you have come here this morning and you're feeling a little bit sticky. You feel like, I've been accused and I've been caught with my hand in the cookie jar. I'm caught red-handed. That's a good thing to admit. And it's a good thing to know that you're not alone. But this story has tremendous hope for sticky Christians. Spurgeon once said, Truly, dear friend, if Satan wants to accuse us, any page of our history, any hour of any day, will furnish him material for his charges. Satan doesn't have to go far looking for something to say against us. Spurgeon says, we've been impatient one day, we've been proud the next, we've been angry another. I think you'd agree, right? We can say those things about ourselves. Have you been impatient at all recently? Impatient at all today? <laughs> Tends to happen on Sundays. Uh, proud, arrogant, angry, jealous, greedy, coarse or harsh with your tongue. Or in today's environment of social media, maybe we should say coarse or harsh with your thumbs. Right. To go on with what Spurgeon said next, he said that the heart is full of sins like a den of birds. I just love this description he gives. He says he wishes he could wring all their necks. If he could just wring all the necks of his sins. It reminds me of, I don't know if they're here in Ramona, but in Escondido we have flocks of parrots. I guess they're wild parrots now. Maybe they fly around here too. And they're kind of cool at first, right? But then they perch right outside my study window. <laughs> and they squawk and they squawk and they take away any peace and quiet I might have had. You know, cool at first, then troublesome later. That might remind us a little bit of our sin. The sin that flocks in our hearts. And Spurgeon says he just can't do anything about all of these squawking sins in his heart. He's outnumbered. We're outnumbered. We can't kill them all on our own, in our own power. We need divine intervention against this flock of sin that tends to roost in our heart. Or to get back to the, the metaphor we see in, in Zechariah 3, in Zechariah's vision, we, we need covering from the stink of our filthy rags. We've seen Satan's accusations, but let's look now at Joshua's rags. So he's making this case against Joshua, the people, against us, but is there a case to be made? We see Satan doing this, and the case really holds water. He's, Joshua is absolutely filthy. You know, some people actually have tried to kind of soften this to mean that, oh, his robes were dirty with ashes because he was mourning that the temple had not been rebuilt. Or his robes were dirty because he was in Babylon surrounded by sin. The people had been surrounded by sin, and they just needed cleaning up. You know, they got a little scuffled and dirty. <laughs> That's really not the picture here. The, the Hebrew doesn't allow it. The adjective that's used here doesn't do any favors to Joshua's condition. To put it mildly, in polite company, his clothes are a stinking pile of filth. It's a very strong word that's being used to describe just how wretched these rags are that point to the sin of the people. What more could we expect, right? I mean, here in this vision, Joshua represents a people who have habitually turned from God's law. They've habitually thrown off his rule. They've wandered through the pigsty of sin in search of other gods, and they stink to high heaven. They're filthy. They're dirty. What we're seeing here is that 
You see, the people, they really might be upset that the temple is in rubble, that their culture has been destroyed, that their beautiful city is in ruins. But what they should be concerned with first is the rubble in their own hearts. I think this is a lesson for us. Maybe we should stop and think about where our concern is when it comes to sin and the effects, the effects of sin. I don't want to say that cultural decline that we see around us is something we shouldn't care about. You know, it surrounds us. It affects us. It bothers us. But too often, like Israel, we look at the rubble all around us instead of the remaining rubble in our own hearts. Even as Christians, right, there's a restoration project underway inside us, in our own hearts. So do we care more about the construction project that the Spirit is doing inside us or about righting every wrong around us? I don't want to pit them against one another, but there's certainly an order that needs to be followed, right? Before we're concerned about the culture and ruins, we need to be concerned about the contamination that still lingers in our own hearts. I think we see here the people are fixated on fixing their culture when it's they themselves that truly need fixing. They truly need fixing. But there's another thing I think we should think about, and that's these filthy rags. You know, when, it's, when, it's, when it comes to some people, it's pretty obvious that they need a change of spiritual clothes. They're like the teenage boy at a track meet or after a ball game, right? It's like, just take a shower already. You know it, I know it, everyone knows it, right? But there's a more subtle and often a more dangerous kind of rags. And it's the rags of our self-righteousness. The worst thing about these rags of self-righteousness is that often to everyone around us, and even to ourselves sometimes as we deceive ourselves with sin, it seems like we're dressed to impress, right? Some people think, well, all I need is a good morality makeover, and everything will be okay, right? And it often works. It, it fools us. It fools everyone around us. We think, if I'm just a little more moral, just a little better about the way I live my life, then, then I'm okay. That deals with the problem. You know, at least if someone is flagrantly disobeying the law of God, it's easy to call someone out and say, look what you're doing. But when we're trusting in our own righteousness, we stand just as defiled in God's court. We need a change of clothes and nothing in our wardrobe will do. We need something outside of us because if we trust in our own good works, in our own righteousness, we're done for. It's game over. Well, here Joshua is standing in his rags and it's like, the people have their hand caught in the cookie jar. There's a smoking gun. He's filthy and he knows it. There's no getting out of it. The case is solid. And if you're from Judah, you don't want to see your high priest standing in filthy rags, right? That's another problem we see here is that not only does he represent the people's sin, but there's a double problem because he's the priest. He's the one who's supposed to go and atone for the sins of the people. He bears the sacrifice into the Lord's presence to atone for their sins. But if the high priest is dirty, is unclean, and cannot enter the temple of the Lord, that's a big problem because he can't even get things back on track. There needs to be a divine intervention. And you can just imagine Zechariah is sitting there on the edge of his seat with his hand, you know, pulling his hair and thinking, what am I going to do? Because he depends on the sacrificial system for his own atonement. He's provisional, looking forward to Christ, right? But if everything is defiled, everything is unclean, then what are they going to do? Well, we think they're doomed at this point when we see the story until someone finally speaks up. 
someone else speaks up. We've seen the case against Joshua, the case against us, but I want to turn now and look at the advocate beside Joshua. The advocate beside Joshua. If you look at verse 5, I love the last line of verse 5. It says, And the angel of the Lord was standing by. Who is this angel of the Lord? Well, it's Jesus. We see this because at the same time, he's sitting as the judge presiding over this case, yet he can speak of the Lord as a separate person. We'll see that in a minute. He he refers to the Lord, yet he himself is the Lord governing this case, judging and presiding over it. We could go so many places in Scripture and look at this theme of the angel of the Lord, but scholars agree that this is a pre-incarnate representation or appearance of the Son of God. This is the Savior before he was made flesh. So we could really paraphrase this last line of verse 5. that says, And the angel of the Lord was standing by. We could just say, And Jesus was standing by. And that line, if we know Jesus, is really good news, isn't it? And Jesus was standing by. Jesus standing by is always good news if you believe in Jesus. If you came feeling sticky this morning, but you know Jesus, you're trusting in Jesus, then you know this is good news. We know the joy of having Jesus standing by. John the Apostle wrote in 1 John 2, 1, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. We have an advocate with the Father. We all want a man in our corner, right? If we're going to go 12 rounds with the accuser who's been accusing God's people for millennia, we want to have the best cut man we can in our corner. If we're going to go up against the most veteran prosecuting attorney that could ever accuse us, we want a top shelf defense, right? But we're broke. We're penniless on our own. There's nothing we can do. But by faith, we look and we see Jesus standing by. Jesus standing by is the news of grace. And it jumps off the page when all of a sudden the advocate says, order in the court. Silence. What does he say? We see verse 2. The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Finally, Jesus standing by jumps in. And he comes to Joshua's defense. He comes to the people's defense. He comes to our defense. And he makes a counter argument against the accuser. It's the irrefutable counter-argument of grace. This is grace, grace, grace all the way. It's the same counter-argument that silences Satan today when he accuses us. Two irrefutable, gracious truths about us. Two truths. And the first we're going to see is that we are chosen for rescue. That's the first thing that Jesus says, right? That the angel of the Lord says. Look again with me at verse 2. It says, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? What does that mean? A brand plucked from the fire. Well, the exile we see in scripture was considered a fire, a furnace like Egypt. We see that in Deuteronomy 4.20. We see it in uh, Jeremiah 11, Amos 4. So deliverance out of Egypt, which Egypt was called an iron furnace. If deliverance out of Egypt was a picture of deliverance from sin and death and captivity, then the exile for disobedience was a picture, a portrayal of slavery and death and captivity as if it were a return to Egypt. 
See, this is where Satan went so wrong. We see the curses in Deuteronomy 28 relate the penalty of the nation's disobedience to a return to Egypt. It's a picture of the chains of sin and death. But that picture wasn't the final point in the story, and that, that's where Satan went wrong. After 70 years, there's a remnant that's been chosen for rescue because there was a promise older than Sinai, a promise made to Abraham. You see, when Satan made this case against Joshua, he didn't bring out all of the evidence. When he brought his case against the covenant people, he didn't bring out all of the evidence. One, one scholar I read helpfully points out that Satan wasn't looking at all the evidence, and that was intentional. He points to their transgression of the law. He points to the fact that they are lawbreakers, full stop, end of story. But there's more. He suppresses the fact that God's program and plan of grace still stand despite the nation's disobedience and rebellion. You see, God still has a plan to bring life to the whole world, and he's going to do it through a promised seed of Abraham. He's going to do it through a righteous branch from Judah, from the house of David. We're going to see this branch show up in the vision in just a minute. But this promise is what's so key here, because it's a promise that means everything for Judah and their return. And it's a promise that means everything for us. We need this promise to come true because of our sin. And God is going to fulfill the promise we see here. And the promise is really Jesus. Paul talks about this promise in Galatians. In Galatians 3, he says that the law was written 430 years after this promise was given to Abraham. It can't nullify the promise. The promise stands. And that promise, according to Galatians 3.16, is Jesus. Paul writes, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, into your offspring who is Christ. In other words, when Abraham was promised a son and promised to be made as to multiply like the stars of the heavens and the sands of the seas, it was going to come through his son. But Paul says here that that son was always Jesus. Of course, it began with Isaac, but ultimately the promised Messiah. Jesus Christ would come from Abraham. We see this promise again in the reason the Lord called the nation out of Egypt in the first place. Moses wrote in Deuteronomy 7. Why, why, did, why did the Lord choose Israel? They were pretty cool stuff. They, they were big. They were powerful. They were important. No. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. That the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Not because you are more numerous than the other peoples. Just because the Lord loves you. And because the Lord promised Abraham. It was because of the promise. You see, there will be no Jesus standing by defending their case. There will be no Jesus standing by defending our case against the attacks of the accuser if this promise doesn't come true. Jerusalem is chosen for rescue so that the rescuer can come through Jerusalem and will be rescued too by that promised one coming from Jerusalem. See, without Jesus, there's no rescue, but also, and this is the second point in Jesus' counter-argument, there's no new robes of righteousness. No rescue and no new robes. We see next that Jesus says we're chosen for rescue, but also we're clothed in righteousness. 
And this is where we really get, I think, to the climax of this rags to righteousness story in Zechariah chapter 3. Look at chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. Well, at this point in the story and the vision, the devil slinks off. We don't hear anything else. (laughs) When he was rebuked and silenced, he goes away. And Joshua now is totally reclothed, not from his own wardrobe. He's reclothed by Jesus. I think Thomas Manton said it best. He was a, a Puritan writer and preacher. And he said when he talked about these new robes that we could even call the hand-me-downs of the King of Kings. He said, there is no getting the blessing, but in the garment of our older brother. That's the only way we get the blessing. When we have Jesus's hand-me-downs. It's much better than that. Hand-me-downs can be kind of lame. These are the robes of righteousness from our Savior, Jesus Christ. That's pretty good, right? It's like the author of Hebrews says, But he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. And that's why he, Jesus, is not ashamed to call them brothers. He's not ashamed to call us brothers. We're consecrated. We're set apart. We're made holy children of God who are dressed in the hand-me-down robes of our older brother, the Son of God, our Savior, Jesus. One older commentator was writing about Zechariah 3 and what it teaches about imputation, about this this idea of Jesus' righteousness placed on us so that we can be seen as righteous in his sight. And he gave a nod to Luther's struggle toward this vital understanding of justification. You know, we're celebrating this month 500 years of Reformation, and it started with an Augustinian monk who was baffled at the fact that God demanded righteousness, but sinners couldn't be completely righteous. And it bugged him. And Satan accused him day after day and pounded on him. He hated it, and he wanted to know how he could be freed. But here, T.V. Moore writes about Zechariah 3, and I'll just quote it because it's so beautiful. It says, Then to show that it was not their righteousness, but another's, that was the ground of their acceptance, and that it was not to encourage them to sin, but to remove remove it, the divine angel commanded in verse 4, that these filthy garments, the symbol of sin, should be removed. And the festal robes, the symbol of imputed righteousness, should be put on him, thus setting forth the great and comforting doctrine of a free justification because of the merits of a redeemer. That's what we see in Zechariah 3. And here's where he nods to Luther. He says, this doctrine and this alone can comfort the heart of the penitent, whether a solitary monk weeping and striving in the convent of Erfurt, the German town where Luther was pounded by the devil day after day, yet finally he's freed by this doctrine. He said, this and this alone can comfort Luther. Or a desponding people brooding in discouragement over the ruins of Jerusalem. This word of comfort, rags rags taken off and righteousness put on, has been God's comfort for his people all the way back millennia before in Zechariah 3. And it's his comfort for his people now. But there's kind of a cherry on top in this vision. There's, there's another step in this clothing of, Zech, of, of the high priest. Because here Zechariah jumps in. Remember we said Zechariah is very interested in the high priest becoming clean. Because Zechariah needs 
to be cleansed from his sin. Well, Zechariah butts in in the vision. And you can't help but think he's just jumping off his seat and he says, put a, put a clean turban on his head. It's like, who asked you, Zechariah? And Zechariah says, put a clean turban on his head. And, the, and that happens. It's part of the Lord's plan, really. And this turban is more than just uh, the crown on a priest. It really has a royal dimension to it. And when we get to this moment in the vision, this is where Joshua really begins to no longer represent the people in the vision. And now he's pivoting. And now we're seeing a picture of Jesus in the high priest Joshua. Because now he's a priest robed in righteousness, wearing a royal diadem on his head. And it's pointing toward the royal priest who would come. That's what verses 6 through 10 are all about. Now, if you're worried that we've only gotten through verses 1 through 5, <laughs> I'm not going to spend as much time on 6 through 10. But we just can't stop and leave that off because this is where we see how all of what's happened before, the accusation silence, the rags for righteousness, all of that happens because of what we see in 6 through 10. And without 6 through 10, it just isn't fair. It's not just. How can you and I, as sinful as we are, as in need of righteousness as we are, how can God just say, okay, new robes for everyone, new robes all around, without any cost, without any price tag? That's unjust. But here we see, here we see how this justice and mercy meets in Jesus. So we look now at the substitute, okay? The substitute. First, we're going to see that Christ's obedience, um, or, you know, we're going to see Christ's obedience as the final faithful high priest. Christ's obedience is the final faithful high priest. Remember, when Joshua is reinstated in his role as the high priest, he's given a charge, right? He's given a command. The pre-incarnate Christ tells him to be faithful and keep his charge. And if he does so, he will rule the house of the Lord and have the right, the right of access into the heavenly court of the Lord. And this is a charge of priests that we see in Numbers 3, 5, and 10. It's just being reiterated here. The priests were to guard and keep the temple. They were to drive out anything unclean, anything unpure. Jesus is telling Joshua, obey the charge, keep your duties, fulfill your responsibilities. So when the priests fulfill this charge, their obedience or lack thereof points to Jesus. And fast forwarding now, by the time we get to the Gospels, are the priests keeping their charge? Are they keeping the temple free of impurity and wickedness and double dealing? What does Jesus say? My house has been made a den of robbers. So Jesus, as the faithful high priest, what does he do? He braids a whip. He flips over tables. And he cleanses the holy place. He's fulfilling his duty as the faithful high priest. And he's also going to be the branch that conquers as the victorious king. Look really quick at the passage again, starting in verse 8. Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are assigned, pointing to something greater. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. Well, what do we care about? Branches, seven-eyed stones, Vines and fig trees today, right now in Ramona, California, 2017. Well, little did we know, we need to understand the truths and the people that these things point to. If we're going to have hope and assurance and peace 
Probably the best explanation of the branch is in Jeremiah. Jeremiah says in chapter 23, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteous Savior. That's the branch. That's the king who will come from Judah. That's why Judah needs their problem dealt with. They need to be back in the land. Jesus needs to come from Judah so we can be rescued. Well, what about the stone with seven eyes? That's a little weird, right? Well, Ian Duguid was really helpful here. He says the, the priest had a stone with seven facets to it attached and associated with the turban that they wore. He says that its inscription was holy to the Lord. And according to Exodus 28, this stone represented the priest's right to enter the holy place, to go and make atonement for sins. So Jesus' righteous life given to us, friends, is not enough. We can't just receive his robes. Someone has to deal with the penalty of our sin. And Joshua pointing forward to Jesus wearing this turban with the seven-eyed stone representing his ability to go and make atonement points to Jesus' ability to satisfy the wrath of God on our behalf. So that's where we see, finally, Christ, the faithful high priest, because of his final sacrifice for sins. What is this pointing to, this branch, this priest greater than David? When will he remove the iniquity of this land in a single day? Well, looking at this side of history, I think we can say that was the cross. That was the single day when the wickedness was removed, when God's wrath against us was atoned for. On a single day, on the single day of atonement, the cross, we see what happens in Zechariah 3. Zechariah, sorry, Zechariah 6. He sees both the priestly and the kingly aspects of Christ here. He says that the royal branch, this branch promised from Judah, will build the temple and rule from his throne. What did Jesus say? Destroy this temple and I will build it up again in three days. Christ, the true temple, becomes rubble for us so that death can be made rubble. Death can be destroyed for his people. But you might be asking, If this is just talking about the cross, then why does it say the sin will be removed from the land? Is this talking about some future paradise on earth? Is this talking about a future millennial reign? Is this talking about the new heavens and the new earth? And what's with verse 10 and the fig tree and the vine and all of that? Well, key here, I think, are the words in that day. In that day. There's good evidence that we could take this as that very same day. So the day when Jesus makes satisfaction on the cross, in that very same day, these things will happen. The single day when iniquity is removed from the land. Well, we've gotten used to, I think, reading Isaiah, right? Uh, This prophetic language where you speak to someone and the words they can understand, even if it points to a greater reality. They understand what it would be like if iniquity is removed from the land, but it points to something far greater, something that John saw walking toward him on the banks of the Jordan. Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the land? No, the sin of the world. And so this imagery of sitting under the fig tree, this is throughout Scripture a symbol of peace and safety, which I think is why John Calvin points rightly to what this means for us. He says, the only way in which believers can enjoy true peace, there's only one way, he says, peace must be sought nowhere but in the agonies of Christ our Redeemer. That's sitting under the fig tree. 
that's living safe and secure all the days of our life because we know Jesus. We trust what he has done for us. We find our peace in his agonies, in his robe of righteousness given to us. Well, what have we seen? We've seen this remarkably rich vision, right? That this whole rags to righteousness story throughout scripture. We've seen that it's all about Jesus silencing the case against us. It's about him pleading our cause in the presence of the Father and about him putting his righteous robes upon us and taking our rags upon himself at the cross. So let me ask you, let me ask you, are you seeking your peace in the agonies of Christ, in his robes of righteousness, or in your own morality makeover? Is that what you know, makes you think you're okay to come to worship, to stand before the Father? Your own morality, your own goodness, the fact you're climbing the ladder of righteousness pretty well yourself? Are you trusting in Jesus? Place your trust in Jesus. Believe. Repent of trusting all these other things and find your peace in him. And Christian, when your accuser throws all of your sins right up in your face, where do you turn? What do you say? Do you sink in despair or do you point to the cross? Do you point to your faithful high priest who made the final satisfaction for your sins? Do you say, look, all of these things are true, (laughs) but there's something else that's true about me. I've been robed in the righteousness of my Savior. Clothed in his righteousness, the accuser has no case against us. And that's the best rags to righteousness story we could ever hope to be true of us. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for this picture of grace given millennia ago that's still just as rich and relevant for us today. Remind us every day that our advocate is beside us, that the accuser no longer has a case against us because of his robes of righteousness, because he substituted himself in death for us. Thank you that we now have a high priest who ever lives to intercede for us, and that through him we always have access to the throne of grace for mercy and help in time of need. Help us to live worthy of this great, gracious gift that we've received. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.